coming up on Man Enough. Men feel blamed when we talk about the patriarchy, but women perceive themselves as being blamed when we talk about the stresses of early childhood and their impact on the child. This is what we have to get. Nobody's being blamed here. It's human empowerment that we're talking about. Because in this culture, both men and women lack genuine power because they're so driven by unconscious Uh forces. And when you're driven by the unconscious, you're like a puppet on a string. Being man enough, what does that mean? It's really manly to mess up, admit you're wrong, and then grow. I couldn't accept that I was evil, so maybe I'm broken, but those broken things could be corrected. Intimacy between a father and a son is me just wanting to, like, put my head in your lap. I love you, son. You haven't called me a benevolent sexist, but my experience is women are better. Even if it's a positive, it's still not equality. I don't blame men for that. I just blame the system. This is Man Enough. Hello and welcome to a... I know we say a lot of our episodes are special. Um, but I have been personally... Uh, fangirling, fanboying, whatever the gender neutral term is about this next guest. And so I'm just so happy to have this episode airing and to get his time. Jamie, Liz, how you guys doing? Are you ready for this? So very much ready. How about you, Liz? I... Yes, this is the conversation of my dreams. I'm, I'm, I'm really thrilled <laughs> to, to be here with all of you. And before and we, before we introduce him, um, because uh, we focus so much on uh, radical sincerity and vulnerability on this podcast, Jamie texted me about uh, 30 minutes ago and said, hey, man, I'm not going to join. I'm really having a tough day. Um, I'm not myself today. I just need some space. And I said, Jamie, I love you. And the way that you're always there for me, I said, if there's one, one show to join, one episode to bring your full self to, it's going to be this one. And I'm happy that, uh, I'm happy that you showed up, Memon. Uh, me as well. Thank you for, <clears throat> for doing for me what I needed. Liz, are you ready to do the honors? Yes. Uh, to introduce a guest that needs no introduction whatsoever. Uh, Dr. Gabor Mate is a renowned speaker, best-selling author, highly sought out for his expertise on a range of topics, including, um, addiction, stress, childhood trauma, and development. And Dr. Mate has written several books, including his new book, a New York Times bestseller, bestseller, The Myth of Normal Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. Uh, we are such big fans of your work. We've been watching, reading you for, for years. And so we're, we're really excited to get this time with you. Well, thanks for having me. Okay. I, there's so many things. There's so many things that we want to talk to you about today. Um, but one thing that I would love to uh, start with, we ask every guest this question. And mm-hmm. having listened to you and so many of your episodes and, um, and I'm not through your book yet, but in your book, you are so honest and so vulnerable. Uh, I can't wait to hear your answer to this question. It is, when was the last time that you did not feel enough? Hmm. Um, yesterday morning, uh, you know, first of all, um, I've been thinking about that question of, of, of being enough or not, you know. And first of all, it's not a feeling. There's no such thing as feeling not enough. Um, feelings are like, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm hungry, I'm tired. Those are feelings. 
I'm not enough is not a feeling. It's a belief. It's a perception. It's a belief. <laughs> so when did I last believe that? Um, I've been thinking about that question because a good friend of mine who's a great trauma therapist and pioneer, Peter Levine, um, <clears throat> said to me about a year ago, and I talked about this in the book in The Myth of Normal, but I hadn't, didn't have the answer for it. Uh, Peter said to me about a year ago that he's, he's 80 years old now. He's a couple of years older than I am. And he's been thinking about, have I done enough in life? And Peter said, yeah, when he thinks about it, I've done enough. I've justified my existence. I've given enough to the world. But then he says, then I asked myself the question, am I enough? And he says, I don't know about that one. So that was a year mm. ago. And then two weeks ago, it struck me mm. that there's no answer to that question. You know what the answer to that question is? Am I enough? The answer Please. is who's asking? Who's asking? That's the answer. Because huh. which is, who's, who in, who, who in us even questions the validity of our existence? In other words, who in, a, who in us questions the truth that as human beings, by definition, we are enough? Because that's what we, does anybody ever say of a dog, are they enough? Or a whale, are they enough? Or a tree, are they enough? Or a rose, or an ant, or a, a cloud, are they enough? They just are what they are. <laughs> and so that the very question, am I enough, comes from a place of insecurity and trauma. So the question is not... Am I enough? But who's even asking if I am? That's the answer to the question. Mm. <laughs> oh, well, first of all, we're going to, it's now going to, when we ask the question, which we'll have to discuss on the podcast moving forward, even if we should, uh, it's a belief versus a feel. I love that so much. And it, it, mm. it it's so right. It is a belief system. That's, uh, that's been pretty much the backdrop for all my work is, wow, how do we change this belief system? Well, wow. so have you ever met, a, have you ever met a one day old baby who doesn't believe they're enough? I mean, this not even occur to them, you know? Never. So where did we go from being completely sufficient as a being at infancy to this adult who is even dares ask that question? So mm-hmm. now we're talking about, tra- now we're talking about trauma. Because mm-hmm. one of the impacts of trauma is this doubt in the value of one's own existence. Mm-hmm. You know? So really the question is a, is a trauma-based question is what it is. If, let's say, um, someone is asked to do something, perform something, do a task at a yeah. job, um, yeah. show up as a husband or a, or a parent, and you, and you yeah. feel, and I like the language you're using, but let's say it's a job. And you don't feel equipped enough. So the question is maybe not coming from someone else's perspective, uh, perspective or perception, but rather it's, do I feel enough? Do I feel prepared? Do I feel like I have all of the materials and, you know, uh, the wherewithal to be what I need to be? Um, how is that not a feeling or, or how is that well, related to myself versus someone else's who's asking the question? So, um, Jamie, um, can you run as fast as, um, Hussein Bolt? <laughs> Absolutely not. No, no okay. chance. I, I might think I can, but I would. 
can you throw can you throw three pointers like Steve Curry? Steph Curry. <laughs> uh, that's an absolute no. <laughs> okay. Well, I'd share your secret, neither can I. Um so if you're speaking about specific tasks, it's perfectly legitimate to say, I don't know enough how to perform this task. But the question, am I enough? That's not what it's asking. Right. The question, am I enough? Doesn't ask, can I do such and such? Am I good enough? I know. I don't know how to fly an airplane. There's a, you know, I, I know billions of things. There are billions of things that I don't know more than the things that I do know. So to mm. say that I'm not adequate for a specific task, no, I'm not adequate to beat Usain Bolt uh, in a hundred meters. Uh, I mean, for God's sakes, I'm only five seven and I'm seventy eight years old. But even when I was twenty years old, I couldn't have beaten him. You know, so I'm not enough. I'm not adequate enough. I don't have enough adequate skills to, for that task. But that's a different question from asking, "Am I enough?" Am I doesn't have mm-hmm. to do with doing. It has to do with being. And and when you're asking, am I enough, you're questioning the very basis of validity of your existence. And by the way, that I can't run as fast or dunk basketball like Steph Curry, that's not a feeling. That's a perception. Mm-hmm. It's a completely valid perception. It happens to be the truth. But it's got nothing to do with, am I enough as a human being? Do you understand the distinction? Mm-hmm. I do, yeah. Yeah. I think one of the most interesting things um, that you've done for our, our culture and, and for your um, for your for your discipline really is to create a new model about how to see mental health. So when I think about disability, there's a there's a social model and there's a medical model for disability. And the the medical model was like you're disabled, you're missing an arm, or you're in a wheelchair, so you can't go up the stairs, you can't do this, you can't do that. You're broken. And the social model of disability that's a more <laughs> modern approach to disability is to say, you're not broken. Um, the fact that there's not an elevator or that, that, that this place is not accessible, that the environment, uh, is, is, mm-hmm. is, is broken in a way, not you. And that's really the, the beauty of all, a lot of your work is that you and, and in, in your recent book where you really question, you know, whether we're toxic or society is, is the one that's toxic and that's sort of... No, no, I don't question. I point out. Right. I don't question whether it's us or society. I very clearly say that it is society. Yes, like, exactly. To go, back to, to, to go back to Jamie's question about, you know, being enough and let's relate it to what you're saying, Liz, about disability. Mm-hmm. So right now, you know, I, I'm, I'm capable, I can swim, I can walk, I can talk, I can, you know, write and speak and do all the things that I do. I can engage in this conversation mm-hmm. with the three of you. Okay? I can do that. Now, it's possible, as it happens to human beings, that I might suffer a stroke. God forbid, but it's possible. Mm-hmm. Then I wouldn't be able to do any of that. I could no longer swim. I could, couldn't talk to you. I might even have difficulty processing what you're saying to me. You might say, I am enough now because I'm abled. But if I had that stroke and I was lying on a bed, would any of you dare come up to me and sincerely say, you used to be enough, but now you're not? Right. But a lot of people will feel that way, though, right? That's a belief. Where does that belief come from? It comes from a toxic mm-hmm. culture that tells people that they're only worth as much as they can do 
as they mm-hmm. can acquire, as they can possess, as they can manifest. So that's mm-hmm. so the toxicity is not an individual. And, and right. A newborn baby, a newborn baby can do nothing whatsoever. You know, and at some point they get to they get the message that their worth is only mm-hmm. um, measurable by how much they how good they look or how the way they mm-hmm. perform in this or that task or mm-hmm. what they can accumulate. You know, mm-hmm. where does that mm-hmm. message come from? It doesn't come from within the human soul. It comes from a toxic culture that mm-hmm. defines the value of human beings by the utility or by their looks, you know? And how does that toxic culture impact women and men differently? Because in your book, you, you go into detail about, in, you know, autoimmune diseases and how it's linked to the way that we raise women in society. Can you speak to that of just the gender differences? Sure. So when we talk about the patriarchy, First, we have to understand we're not talking about any kind of a conscious or even uh, or a conspiracy on the part of men. That's not what we're mm-hmm. talking about. Men suffer just as women suffer. It's just that the suffering takes different forms. Some salient facts. Women are twice as likely to be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder as men are. A woman with severe post-traumatic stress disorder has doubled the risk of ovarian cancer. Wow. The link between the mind and the body. Uh, women are much more likely to be taking antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication than men are. 70 to 80% of autoimmune disease happens to women, such as rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, scleroderma, lupus. Um, there's about 60 of these conditions, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, you know, uh, colitis, Crohn's disease. On the other hand, when it comes to suicide and addictions men are or, or to death or death by mutual violence that's more likely to happen to men you know so that there's an unequal distribution of suffering but both genders suffer yeah. so then the question is why so that to look at um, autoimmune disease so in my family practice and also i worked um, for seven years as a palliative care physician uh, before i turned to addiction medicine I noticed that there's certain personality patterns that are associated with chronic illness. So, for example, um, people prone to autoimmune disease or malignancy tend to be people who repress their emotions, mm-hmm. like healthy anger. Um, they tend to be people who think of the emotional needs of others ahead of their own. They tend to be people who want to be nice and compliant and and, and, and peacemakers. Mm-hmm. They tend to be people who believe that they're responsible for other people feel and they must never disappoint anybody. Now, I can talk about physiologically why these emotional traits promote illness. But even before I go on, let me ask you, of the two major genders in a society, I'm talking about statistically, which is the one that's acculturated to suppressing their healthy anger, um, serving the needs of others, taking on the stresses of others, and ignoring their own. It's women. Hmm. That's how we raise girls. And that's why women have more autoimmune disease, because these patterns that suppress emotions and the authentic self also imbalance the immune system. 
And that's mm-hmm. because, well, let me give you, a, let me give you a really clear example, just, just to make it really clear. If, if I were to, any of you, if I were to be rude or inappropriate or insulting to any of you, what would be some of the healthy responses that you could make to that right now in this setting? What could you do? Set a boundary, right? Yeah. The other thing you could do just to get angry. You yeah. can't talk to me that way. Right. You can't talk to me that way. You're, in other words, you're intruding on my space here. You can't do that. That's healthy anger. We share that circuit in our brain for healthy anger with all mammals. Healthy anger is simply a boundary defense. You got that? It says, you're in my space, get out. Could, could another name for that also be righteous anger? I've heard, at least my therapist has talked a little bit about. Yeah, you could call it that. Righteous anger, though, when I think about it, it's when I, when I see an injustice. Okay. Whether, whether to somebody else or myself. Yeah. And then, so, you know, okay. healthy anger, what I'm talking about is simply a personal boundary defense. Now, what's the role of the emotions in general? And I talk about this in the book. So this is what it looks like. Okay. The myth of normal trauma, illness and healing in a toxic culture. So I talk about this in the book. So what's the role of the emotional system in general? The role of the emotional system is to allow in what is healthy and nurturing and to keep out what is unhealthy and unwelcome. So Jamie had some kind of a, an issue this morning, but because of the relationship between Justin and Jamie, Jamie allowed Justin's supportive and inviting words and, 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 and energy in and, and went along with it. If Justin had approached Jamie, just to give an example, with disdain or, or contempt or hostility, then Jamie would not have let that in. That would be in the healthy response. So the role of the emotional system is to allow in what's healthy Keep out what isn't. Now, let me ask you guys a skill testing question. You won't have to think a long time about this. What's the role of the immune system? To defend and protect. To protect the body. It's the same thing. It's to let in what is healthy and to keep out what's unhealthy. Mm. Unhealthy bacteria. Our immune system sets boundaries. Yeah, it sets boundaries (laughs) that that lets some things in and keep... Here's the scientific fact that's not even controversial from the scientific point of view, but which is not taught to medical students, incredibly, that the mind and the body are inseparable and the emotional system and the immune system are part and parcel of the same apparatus. So when you suppress the emotions, you're also suppressing the immune system. Yes. So that, yes, so yes, that, yes, so that, yes, yes. So that when you, when you, when you imbalance your emotions, you're also imbalancing your immune system. And that's why those emotional traits of self-suppression also turn the immune system against you. And that's why women have more autoimmune disease, because they're programmed to do that, not by gender, biological gender, but by the demands of the patriarchal culture. So that's yeah. what I mean. Partly what I mean by a toxic culture. So let me give you an example. There was a study out of Massachusetts. They looked at 2,000 women over 10 years. Those women that were unhappily married but didn't express their emotions were four times as likely to die 
as those women who were also unhappily married, but they did express their emotions. Wow. 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 Then you also talk about anger for men, right? That, that, um, after a rage event or, 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 or a big anger event for men, they're four times more likely yeah. to then have a heart attack or have a heart incident, right? So the, there's also the, the flip side, which is so fascinating, the way that gender plays into these things. Yeah. You have a few very successful um, uh, psychologist speakers that are appealing directly to men today. Yeah, and yeah. one of the things you re you just said in response was you mentioned the patriarchy, which we yeah. mention very often on this show. Yeah. But there are a few, and I, we can just say, like as an example, Jordan Peterson, who I do, I uh, I do not think is all bad by any means, but I don't agree with everything that he says. One of the things I don't agree with is that he doesn't believe the patriarchy exists, and I would just yeah. be curious. Um, because you've you've come out and publicly disagreed with him a few times. I'm just curious what your argument for why the patriarchy exists would be if you were going to be sitting with him and we were having a discussion. Yeah, well, first of all, the problem is that when sometimes the word patriarchy is used, men immediately perceive themselves as being attacked. Exactly. They think they're being they be, they think they're being criticized, which is not the case. That's why in the beginning I said, when I say patriarchy, I'm not talking about a conspiracy on the part of man. I'm talking about a culture. Okay? Yeah. I quote um, David Foster Wallace, the late and great uh, American author, who at a commencement address at a university gives this anecdote. And he says that um, two fish, two young fish are swimming in, you know, along in, in, in the stream or wherever. And this older fish comes along and says, good morning, boys, how's the water? And the uh, two young fish swim along for a while, and then one of them turns to the other one and says, what the hell is water? <laughs> and, 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 and Foster Wallace's point is, and actually let me find this in the book, it is right in the introduction. The point that Wallace wanted to leave his audience pondering was, and I'm quoting him, the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones hardest to see and talk about. Because wow. we're too close to them. We don't see them. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. he says, on the surface, this might sound like a, quote, banal platitude. But then he says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have life or death importance. And he was mm -hmm. summing up the thesis of my whole book. <laughs> now, Peterson is so close to the patriarchy, and he's so entrenched in his ideology that he cannot see it. It's in the mm -hmm. nature of any ideology is that, you, is that you don't see that it's an ideology. You think you're mm -hmm. looking at reality. Now, mm -hmm. in his book, 12 Roots for Life, An Antidote to Chaos, now that's an interesting title. Because mm -hmm. he says, because he thinks that the answer to chaos are rules. Order. Yeah, that's not the antidote to chaos. There was order in Stalin's Russia. There was order. Hmm. You dare not go against it. If you did, you were annihilated. That's a kind of order. There was order in Hitler's Germany. The trains ran on time. You know, the antidote to chaos is not order. It's harmony. Hmm. Because in chaos, the different parts of a system are working against each other. 
The answer is not rules that you impose, either from the outside or from the inside. It's to find harmony. How can the different mm. parts to work together? And, and what's, keep, what's keeping it that way now, to go, to go to one of the rules that Peterson suggests when it comes to anger is that a small child who's angry should be made to sit by themselves until they come back to normal. Yeah, that hurt. That hurt when I read that. He also believes that it's okay to hit kids. In fact, he as much says so, that without physical intimidation, you can't be uh, teaching discipline. So his idea of discipline is intimidation. These are typical patriarchal uh, ideological beliefs. Because if you look at matriarchal societies, how they raise children, they didn't intimidate them. They didn't hit them. When they cried, they picked them up. They loved them. And children learn discipline from the inside. By Because what's discipline? If you look at the word disciple, Jesus had disciples. Who were mm-hmm. the disciples? And why did they follow him? Because they loved him. Why did they, why did they love him? Because he loved them. So the, you, you get discipline through love, not through mm. intimidation. Peterson's fatal mistake is that he basically believes in an intimidating, hierarchically imposed order. Now, why does followers love him so much? Because a lot of men are hurting in this society. They really are hurting. This culture has deprived men significantly. For example, there used to be real jobs where people had a sense of purpose and belonging and meaning. They may not have been perfect, mm-hmm. but they were productive, well-paid jobs. That's been taken away. What's the result? 100,000 overdose deaths in the U.S. last year. Do we think that came from nowhere? That came from the destruction of people's sense of belonging. What in my book I call dislo- I call dislocation, not my word. I borrowed it from a friend of mine, uh, Bruce Alexander, a psychologist, who himself borrowed it from an economist called Polanyi. This location is when you don't have a sense that you belong, you have a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, Now, this society creates a lot of dislocation for people. So people are lost. They're angry. Then it's much easier for them to think that the source of their loss is these, all these uppity women and feminism. <laughs> or all these blacks who want uh, want equality, all the, all, all these immigrants who want to take their jobs, you know, it's much easier for them to see the enemy uh, as some kind of an external um, threat than to see that it's the system itself that's creating their suffering. Mm-hmm. And so Peterson comes along and says, you know, validates their emotions validates their hurt, validates their rage, and Peterson is full of rage. You listen to his yeah. voice, he's choking with rage he's choking with rage all the time. Literally he's choking with rage. In this society, in Western society, for hundreds of years now, we become completely dominated by the left brain and we're afraid of the intuitive, emotional, vulnerable right brain. And Peterson is desperately afraid of the right side of the brain. And he's with the left brain, which is brilliant. He can make all kinds of brilliant arguments and uh, uh, create wonderful things. But it's lacking that balance. And by the way, when the British um, colonists came to North America, you know what the first thing they did? 
to the natives in in Canada at least they destroyed the matriarchy mhm they they because power used to be passed on on matriarchal lines in indigenous culture in at least in the north part of north america i imagine mm-hmm. elsewhere as well but the colonies knew that if we're going to control these people first we have to destroy the matriarchy so they established the patriarchy hmm. now how anybody can look at this society and see this left brain dominance and see the fact that most of the power is wielded by men of a certain color by the way how can anybody look at this culture and not realize that we're living in a patriarchal culture not because men are conspiring most men are not even aware of it they're the victims of it themselves you'd have to be completely blind to the ideology and young men have suffered a lot in the last few decades Mm. And so Peter Kutzer comes along and says, your anger is righteous and these feminists are ruining it for you. Mm. And here are the rules we have to follow. It, 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 it creates mm. a kind of, he comes along sort of like a stern but caring father who's going to give you the rules to how to live. A father that most of these, many of these men haven't had. I, uh, if I could just share, exactly. Jamie, Jamie and I are both um, Baha'is. And um, okay. I shared a quote in, in, in my TED talk, but I want to just read this to you because it's it's mm. so in, it encapsulates what you're talking about. This is from Abdul Baha. He says, "The world in the past has been ruled by force, and man is dominated yeah. over women by reason of his more forceful and aggressive qualities, both of body and mind. But the balance is already shifting. Force is losing its weight in mental alertness, and in intuition, and the spiritual qualities of love and service, in which women are strong, are gaining ascendancy. Hence." The new age will be an age less masculine and more permeated with the feminine ideals, or to speak more exactly, will be an age in which the masculine and feminine elements of civilization will be more evenly balanced. And that is why we're doing this show. That is why I've chosen this as, as something that um, I, I care so deeply about. Um, because as you said, harmony, harmony is the antidote, if anything. And the, the harmony And the harmony means the balance within the right and the left side of the brain. Now, if you look at mm. human evolution, if you actually look at it scientifically, human beings have been, um, our species has been in the earth, let's say on 2,000 years, give or take a couple of 10,000 10, years here or there. Before then, and even after our arrival, there were other human beings, hominids, human-like creatures, mm-hmm. for, for hundreds of thousands of years. For millions and hundreds of thousands of years, We lived in small band hunter-gatherer groups, about 50 to 60 to 80 people working together, traveling together, living together, raising children together, collaborating, communicating. In this society, children were raised in a loving way. As I said earlier, they were picked up, they were nurtured, they were not hit, they were not separated from the parents when the parents disapproved of their behavior. They were raised in a maternal kind of way. Mm. If the existence of our species can be measured in an hour, civilization is about five minutes ago. So until five minutes ago, we lived in in a matriarchal way where it was not a question of women having more power. It's a question it was nourishing and communal and collaborative. So how are we living right now? 
and the patriarchal domination that came along with agriculture and the rise of private property and wealth and competition and power, that's a really new phenomenon. It goes quite contrary to our evolutionary needs and our evolutionary development. How do you think, and, and, and you might not have an answer for this, but this is something that um, we talk about a lot on our show. We do not, and I've been very clear, this, this is not a man-hating, boy-hating, like, you know, we're the problem uh, show or message. My books aren't. And yet, because I have been asking, and same with Liz, I've been asking men to not reject the feminine parts of themselves, to embrace mm-hmm. their humanity. Mm-hmm. It's so easily um, cast aside and looked at as... Oh, that's just feminine, feminist propaganda. Oh, that's just liberal thinking. Um, oh, they're yeah. just trying to brainwash. Oh, you're trying to make men weak. And I, uh, I love being a man. I love masculinity. Mm. I love, mm. I love the sensitive parts of myself. I was a very sensitive, empathetic young boy. I learned how to numb those parts of myself and stuff it all down. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how we could do better as a show me individually, how we could reach some of the men who I believe are ready for this message, but are, are lost in this idea that the world is against them and, um, and maybe prescribing to a different ideology. Okay. So first of all, where do people get the idea that the world is against them? Okay. We're born as newborns, completely trusting. Where do we come to the belief that the world is against us? Now, by the way, childhood trauma. I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, childhood trauma. Yeah, I because you know I used to wake up resenting the world. Really, I did. You know, for a long time in my life, for most of my life, I resented the world more than I loved it. Honest to God, that's how I felt about it. Mm. Comes from childhood trauma. So, if I said that there's a man who said that the world is a horrible place where everybody's against you, where everybody wants what you want, they want your house, your wealth, your wife. And these are your friends. It's a doggy dog world. What would you imagine about the childhood of that man? It was painful. It's a painful book. Now, this man was president of the United States, Donald Trump. He said that in so many words in his autobiography. If you read his childhood, it's a highly traumatizing childhood. His niece, Mary Trump, who's a psychologist, wrote a book about the Trump family where he talks about Fred Trump, the elder Trump, Fred um, Jr., Mary's father, died of alcoholism. Donald identified with the toxic masculinity of his father and became a great success. But look how angry he gets whenever he loses. He can't stand it. Anyway, I'm saying that these men who believe that the world is against them, they need to actually look at where that even comes from. Mm. It comes from their own pain that they haven't looked at. Now, if you want to Look at this issue. You know what, you know, you talk to, talk to some war vets, veterans. Mm. If you haven't already done that, these war vets with PTSD or talk to policemen with PTSD or talk to firemen, the most masculine guys you can get. Mm. Um, and they very often suffer from severe PTSD mm. because of, partly because of the nature of their job. The, as co-ops or as firemen, as first responders, ambulance attendants, they see so much trauma, so much suffering, 
so much death, so much pain, so much cruelty. They absorb that. And what these tough masculine men, what they will tell you is that that, ma- that toxic masculinity just about killed them. And what saved them is when they became vulnerable. You know, they didn't used to have pain. They didn't used to have emotions. They were just tough. And the healing had to do with becoming vulnerable and recognizing their vulnerability. And we make this mistake of, of confusing vulnerability with weakness. Mm-hmm. Vulnerability is not weakness. To, to actually admit your vulnerability is to be emotionally very strong. Yes. To deny it is to be emotionally very weak. And these tough guys, these war veterans, these first responders, these cops, once they heal, they become very vulnerable. So if you want to appeal to men who are afraid of vulnerability, talk to some of these people because they will tell you their journey. Mm. They will tell you their journey from toxic masculinity to, to healing, which actually means embracing what we will call their more feminine side of vulnerability and emotional openness and emotional awareness. Mm. So that's one way to approach it. Gabor, the first first thing I would uh, love to say is thank you for sharing this. Also, I want to apologize for um, not speaking too much. I'm generally um, one that includes myself more than I am now, and um, mm-hmm. and I'm still uh, and and my heart and mind are in a space that's um, more suited to hear your words and to embrace mm-hmm. them um, more to interject. So um, um, please, not that you would, but. Please don't hear that as not an interest. I'm very, very, very much moved by your words. Um, Thank you. I am, I, I am curious to ask you a question about um, something that you wrote. Um, and maybe you can, I'll quote you. You said all the diagnoses that you deal with, depression, anxiety, ADHD, bipolar illness, post-traumatic stress disorder, even psychosis yeah. are manifestations of trauma. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious about that, because some of it I understand. You know, you, you, you experience something like you had just talked about, a policeman who goes and lives a life as they do, or a police officer, I should say. Um, and that's more understandable to me. But something yeah. like, um, some sort of depression or anxiety or, uh, maybe explain that. Okay. Sense, I think a lot of us deal with that in different ways. And tell me where the trauma comes in or what that trauma can look like. Does that mean actual events? Um, sure. When we were younger, how does sure. that look? Sure. Well, um, first of all, just in response to your statement, I never took your silence of disrespect. I was just curious about what was going on for you, you know? So thanks for sharing that. Um, in terms of... Um, Depression, that's the first thing you mentioned. Let's look at it, okay? What does it mean to depress something? Shut it down. Push it down. Push it down. Yeah, if you're driving your car and you have to stop, what do you do? You depress the brake, right? You push it down, okay? So what's, what gets pushed down in depression? Feelings. Feelings of joy. Emotions. Yeah, <laughs> right. Now, why would somebody push down their emotions? Have you ever met a one-day-old baby that depresses their emotions? No. No. Why would somebody depress? I'm, I'm, this is, I'm not testing you here. I'm sort of asking leading questions, I admit. But why would somebody depress their emotions? You know why they would depress their emotions? Because somebody read Jordan Peterson's book. 
and and and, and uh, we, 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 which which says that the day the way that an angry child should be made to sit by themselves till they come back to normal. The kid desperately wants to belong and be close to the parents. That's an absolute need of the child. That's called attachment. Attachment is our sense of belonging and connection with for the sake of being taken care of. Then when you say to the child, but when you're angry, you can't be around me. What message does the child get? If I have my authentic anger, as a two-year-old, by the way, if you don't make your kid angry, you're not doing your job. Because your kid wants, because your kid wants a cookie before dinner. And if you're doing your job as a parent, you're not going to give him a cookie before dinner. You're going to say, no cookie before dinner. Now, what do human, what do immature human beings do when their desires are frustrated? They throw a tantrum. That's what I do when my desires are frustrated, you know, even into my 60s. And I have to say almost into my, well, I'm 78 now, but I can still get that way sometimes, you know, much less than I used to. So the two-year-old throws a tantrum because they wanted that cookie. Because the two-year-old can't make a distinction between his needs and his desires. Now, if the parent is emotionally grounded and understands the child, the parent will perfectly well understand why the child is angry, won't take it personally, doesn't see it as bad behavior, sees it as a natural response to frustration. And says, oh, you're really angry right now because you really wanted that cookie. Yeah. But you don't punish the child. If you punish the child for the anger, the message the child gets is, if I'm angry, I'm not acceptable to my parents. I better push on that feeling. I better depress it. This isn't conscious. It's adaptive. It's an adaptive behavior on the part of the child to repress the anger. Because to express it is to threaten the relationship with the parents. So the depression becomes an adaptive response. They're pushed on their feelings. And 30 years later, since the child doesn't do it consciously, it's an automatic defensive adaptation on the part of the organism. They can't stop it. So 10, 20, 30 years later, they're still pushing down their emotions. Mm-hmm. Now they're diagnosed with a disease called depression. It's not mm-hmm. a disease that they inherited. It's an adaptive mechanism. Are you following that, Jim? I am indeed, yeah. Okay. I, well, no, ADHD, attention deficit disorder. The rate of which is going way up, and millions of kids are being medicated. And I was diagnosed with it myself in my 50s. If you're a, a small child, a two-year-old, a one-year-old, a three-month-old, and your parents are really stressed, not because they don't love you, not because they're not trying to do their best, just because they're stressed, because of racism or oppression or poverty or, or, or their own traumas or economic stress. When your parents are stressed, the child is stressed. You can measure the parent's stress level by measuring the child's stress hormone levels. Now, what does the child do when they're stressed? They could run away, or could they, at six months of age or two years of age? Or they could fight back, or could they, at six months of age? As a Jewish infant under the Nazis, what could I do about my mother's stress? Could I run away or change it? No. How does my brain deal with it? The brain deals with it by tuning out, mm-hmm. by dissociating, by getting absent-minded. That's how the brain deals with the pain of all that stress. But when is this happening? 
This is happening when the brain is developing. The human brain develops in interaction with the environment. So the tuning out, which is an adaptive mechanism, is programmed into my brain. And then decades later, I'm diagnosed with this so-called disease. Hmm. So, so I'm saying that all mental health conditions can find their roots. And by the way, there's a British psychologist, Richard Bentall, who's a member of the British Academy, who summed up the literature very beautifully, the scientific literature. He said that the link between childhood adversity and adult mental health illness is as strong, as well-documented as the link between cigarette smoking and lung cancer. Mm -hmm. And the average physician never hears that, never hears it. It's not part of their education. So uh, does that answer the question for you? Yeah, indeed. Thank you for sharing that. I'm curious what your mm -hmm. thought is, what we can do to unlearn some of these traumas um, in general as a society. So, for instance, what you just explained about children and allow we want to allow them to feel their um, understandable anger and frustration and not shame them for it. Yeah. There are yeah. there are women that are oftentimes told, get over it, um, stop screaming, yeah. stop yelling. While, of course, they're oppressed and abused and such, and there are black people like myself that are a lot of people yeah. are telling us, shut up already, enough, enough, enough. And or at the very least, they're saying, if you can talk to me in a calm voice, then I'll listen to you. Yeah. But when you express yeah. anger and emotion with it, then we're shut down. Um, people who yes. are oppressed. Right. So um, now I know that exists. I've experienced that my whole life. I'm more curious in how do we. Um, undo the trauma for those that are oppressing so that then yeah. they can then learn, right? So if we're men, if we are oppressing women, how do we undo some of that stuff so then we can then be better? Yeah. Sure. So there's so many um, layers to the question, but yeah. um, James Baldwin once said that to be an American black is to live in a state of suppressed rage all the time. And uh, if you look at why black men have much rate, high rates of high blood pressure, I think it's because of that, you know, because the, because the biological relatives in Africa don't have the same problem. So it's not a question of their genetic biology. It's a question of the system, the toxic culture again. If you even look at the, 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 the medical name for high blood pressure, what is it? It's hypertension. And think about that hmm. phrase, hypertension, split hypertension. it into two. Hypertension, too much tension, you know. But but your question was how to um, undo the trauma of those that are traumatizing people. You can't. Can't be done. Um, Yogi Berra, the great baseball player and manager, once said this. You know, he had these incredible aphorisms that only he could um, generate. And he once said, if the people don't want to go to the ball game, there's nothing you can do to stop them. You know, so, yeah. You know, you were talking about ADHD. Your book about ADHD brought me to tears. Um, I, I, you touch on so many things. I really recommend it to anyone who's listening. Who's, um, you know, I was I was diagnosed in my in, in my thirties, which felt very late. You in your fifties, which is even later. It must have been a lot to sort of take in. Um, but you say, you know, even it, we, we should call it attunement deficit disorder, that there's a lack, yeah. you know, very often it's a lack of attunement with the, with the mother that can, um, the, you know, create lasting or, or the yeah. parent, but, but yeah. you do focus a lot on maternal moods and, and, and that, the you know, and, and a lot of no, studies, no, no. You know, actually, actually, uh, Liz, what I say in the book is the mothering parent, whoever the mothering parent happens to be. Right. The mothering parent. So right. Right. <laughs> 
So this is, you get another problem here. Men feel blamed when yeah. we talk about the patriarchy, but women perceive themselves as being blamed when we talk about the stresses of early childhood and their impact on the child. This is what we have to get. Nobody's being blamed here. Nobody, mm-hmm. mothers don't choose to get, mothers don't choose to get stressed. It's just, or, they, well, we, or depressed. Mm-hmm. Right, but we also don't support mothers, right? That it's, it's, um, I, I think you're absolutely right. We, you know, especially in the U.S., I mean, literally no parental leave. We don't offer any kind of, um, economic social support. We, we put so much on mothers and so much responsibility, but then give them nothing to meet those expectations. And then when children suffer, we, to your point, blame them. Uh, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious how we can create policies that do, um, or, or just a, a culture and a society that does support mothers, um, and I guess as a as a follow up, I I also, you know, I totally agree with your points about the patriarchy and how it, um, you know, is is based on a society of doing and pushes men and women into um, into well pushes men into certain roles, but almost feminism, you know, the latest version of it. If you take the last ten years, it's been about a very masculine take on on feminism and a very masculine take on how women should succeed and how they should perform. And in many ways, it's made, uh, again, women more stressed. <laughs> um, and, and it's not bad that yeah. women are, are working, obviously. But how can we have a, a, a healthier approach to female empowerment, to creating sure. a more supportive society for everybody? First of all, I, I, I'd like to rephrase the last question. Not female empowerment, but human empowerment. Yeah. Because in this culture, both... Because in this culture, both men and women lack genuine power. Because they're so driven by unconscious mm-hmm. forces, they they lack power. That's the, you know, and when you're driven by the unconscious, you're like a puppet on a string being pulled by these traumatic mm-hmm. imprints. You know? Yeah. So, so it's human empowerment that we're talking about. Okay? So that's the first point. The second point is, particularly in the United States, the shocking fact is, that 25% of the women have to go back to work within two weeks of giving birth. Yeah. Now, you know what that amounts to? No, you know, you know what that amounts to? It amounts to a massive abandonment of infants. Yeah. Because the infant needs that mother for a long time. So basically, this is a brutal culture that, that abandons right off the bat 25%, 25% of their, uh, of the infants. That's the first point. The second point is, that the influences on brain development of the human being, according to multiple studies, already the mother's emotional states while she's carrying the baby has an impact on the child's brain development and future mental health. Mm. So mothers who are stressed or depressed pregnancy, their infants are more likely to have ADHD, for example, later on. Now, does any woman choose to get depressed or stressed? No. Why should we blame her as an individual? But what we could do is we could train physicians that when a pregnant woman comes to them for prenatal care, we don't just do ultrasounds and blood tests and blood pressure and weight measurements. We also say, how are you doing? How are you feeling? How's How's your relationship? Are you getting the support? You could listen to women. And if the doctor doesn't have the time, Let's find other people. Let's find a nurse. Let's find somebody else who can spend the time and listen to the woman. Because just being listened to empathetically immediately changes the emotionality of your body. You know? 
So that's just a very simple little thing that we could do. Secondly, we could look at how we give birth. We completely medicalize birth. Yes. Birth is me- birth is meant to be uh, not just uh, an exercise in pushing the baby out of the womb, but in creating a bond between mother and infant. How does birth do that? Natural birth do that? By releasing hormones in both the mother and infant that promote mm. bonding. Oxytocin and endorphins and vasopressin and so on. What's called a love cocktail. Now, modern medicine is absolutely essential, you know, to save lives. And modern obstetrics has saved the lives of many men and, and many women, I'm sorry, and many infants. Absolutely essential. But we've overdone it so that there's a cesarean section rate in many areas of North America that's over 40%. Cesarean sections, when they're necessary, are life-saving, but that's in about 10 or 15% of cases. The rest of the time, we've over-medicalized it. We're interfering with the bonding. We could demedicalize childbirth. We could actually put childbirth into the hands of yes. midwives again. Or physicians yes. who are trained like midwives. Physicians who are trained like midwives. And we know statistically the outcomes are a whole lot better. Thirdly, we could actually save a whole lot of money in the legal system, in the educational system, if we provided decent support for young families at risk. We could introduce human developmental education into the education of teachers so that teachers would understand that the human child develops, first of all, emotionally, and that the circuits in the brain that promote learning have to have emotional safety for their healthy development. So we wouldn't be stressing kids with standardized exams and rules and so on. We'd be promoting their play. Play is essential. We have a circuit in the brain for play. We share that with other animals. The reason I put my little cat outside the door, which is a kitten, and she's we'd be jumping on this table playing all the time, that would interfere with our with our conversation. But that play circuit in our brain we share that with other mammals. It's essential for healthy brain development. Our schools will be placed situations of emotional support, emotional understanding, and lots of play, creative play. Then our kids would easily learn all the facts and all the data that we want them to learn because they have healthy brains. This would save us a whole lot of money. Mm. What if teachers and parents understood that the child is acting out, the behavior is only a symptom? of emotional distress. And if we address the emotional need, which is close connection with nurturing adults, that child will stop acting out because they don't have to anymore. But instead, what do we do? Rules. We punish them. We intimidate them physically. We intimidate them emotionally. We threaten them with loss of contact. You know? And... What if we actually taught physicians about trauma? What if we showed them the vast literature, a Canadian study? Men who are sexually abused have tripled the rate of heart attacks as adults because trauma causes inflammation, inflammation in the body. And trauma also makes you behave in ways. That, you know, a child who's sexually abused, they should be very angry. But can they afford to be angry? What would happen during the sexual abuse if a little, ba- little boy got angry? They'd be even more hurt. More hurt. So they repress their rage. Mm-hmm. That, then 
then that rage may come out of them later on in the form of these rage attacks. So I, I talked about healthy anger. You're my space, get out. But that's gone as soon as it's done its job. The rage that's repressed keeps breaking out of you like a volcanic, volcanic eruption. And as you said earlier, Liz, in the aftermath of a rage episode, a man, a person has doubled the risk of a heart attack or a stroke. Was in the aftermath of a okay. rage episode, which men are, which men are prone to. The blood pressure goes up, the blood vessels narrow, clotting factors goes up, and so on. So, we pay heavy emotional price for the childhood traumas, heavy emotional price and heavy physiological price. And the average physician never gets a single lecture about anything I've said today. You know, Joe Rogan, he talks about this openly. He talks about his, you know, his, his addiction to winning in, in, in martial arts. Mm-hmm. And he's much more, he's much more open about his vulnerability now. And when I'm on his program, you know, I, not that long ago, I asked him, when did you feel more yourself? Were you in this um, tense, uh, competitive, masculine phase or now that you're much more open and vulnerable and, and, and you know, admit your emotions? He says, I'm much mm-hmm. more myself now. I'm much more myself now. He's a real mm-hmm. example in a positive sense. Mm-hmm. Whatever you agree with, I'm not talking about whether you agree with his ideas about everything. I'm talking about who he is a person. Mm. And so, um, that, you know, there the, the you have somebody who was really masculine in that narrow sense. Now he's much stronger in both the emotional mm. and the physical sense, you know? Mm. So the, I, the answers to society are not that difficult. We just have to get the reality. And uh, before we wrap up, you know, something I've been wanting to talk about and share with you, um, because again, it wasn't until um, listening to you um, uh, starting your book, I really feel like the healing journey I've been on for nearly two years now is being put into into words in a way that um, has been hard to articulate. We had a whole conversation about healing where Jamie is my best friend. Basically said, you know, sometimes I'm worried about you because uh, mm-hmm. you go so deep, you go so deep into your stuff mm-hmm. that I don't know where Justin is sometimes. And, and I'm wondering when, mm-hmm. you know, when is enough? When is enough? Um, I, something that uh, happened to me, and I know you've shared a, a, a similar thing, is for, for about 10 years, I made documentaries about individuals who were terminal. Mm-hmm. Um, my first experience uh, with death was holding the hand of my uncle as he passed when I was 20, because nobody in my family was able to emotionally be there for him. Um, I then went off to tell stories about, um, young people who were dying of illnesses and how they were living in an attempt to teach people that you don't have to find out you're dying to start living. I then went on to make movies, studio pictures about those people. What I learned over the course of this, uh, nearly seven or eight years was that I, and I only learned this through deep trauma work, um, mm-hmm. uh, that I had been unknowingly <clears throat> absorbing all of their energy. Mm-hmm. And here I was as a healthy, you know, late twenties man telling their story, becoming close to them as they were dying. Uh, my career was growing and overnight I started to develop health anxiety, which I don't remember mm-hmm. ever having deep fears of death, thinking about death. Before I knew it, I'd get a headache and I'd wonder if it was a brain tumor. I had children 
And suddenly I was thinking about what would happen to them if I died. Would my wife fall in love with another man? Would he be better than me? Could he please her more than I could? And my brain was just going off on all of these different tangents and places. The first story I ever told was a 28-year-old man who had two children who said the words, my biggest fear is that I'm going to be a shadow in the memory of my children. And then that sticks with me. And they text with me and then they pass. And some live. And it was living in my body. And I was filled with anxiety. Um, and so I started to go deep and do trauma work. And once realized as I was clearing a lot of this, um, in pretty profound ways that, um, that it wasn't mine. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to ask you to anybody who's listening, who, whether it's health anxiety, because they had a mom or a brother or a sister develop cancer or die prematurely or a father or, or they're just watching the news. If we have just people struggling with anger issues, um, what are things, what are tangible things? Cause not everybody has access to healers to the type yeah. of healing that I do. Um, what are tangible things maybe some of our listeners can do to process some of the trauma, some of the, um, some of the repressed anger and emotions that exist in our body that are making us sick, um, in a healthy way? Well, let me follow the course of your, of your, of your statement, uh, as, as best I remember it from the beginning. Okay. So first of all, beginning with the conversation with you and Jamie. Oh, is it, when is it too much and so on? And can you go too deep? Okay. Um, and when is it over? So there's two answers to that question. Okay. First is I've talked about this publicly before, but I've written my own epitaph, you know, uh, the, um, engraved on my gravestone. You know what it's going to say? It's going to say it was a lot more work than I had anticipated. That's what it's going to say. You know, because healing, is actually about growth. It's about becoming whole. Hmm. And that's, for most of us, that's a lifelong proposition. So in a certain sense, and when people talk about growing wiser and growing older, you can actually grow as you get older. Or you can shrink as you can older get older. So the question is, what do we choose? If we choose to grow and become more whole, that's ongoing work, you know, and then that's ongoing work for me. It's ongoing for, for everybody. There's nothing wrong with that. On the other hand, there's actually some deep validity to Jamie's question to you. But it's also possible mm. to identify with this, to identify with my trauma and my healing and to put too much, uh, all my energy into that rather than just living, you know. It's a, it, so even the healing process, if one identifies with it too much, can be an escape from oneself. You know, so that, you know, I'm a healer mm-hmm. and I'm a survivor and I'm, you know, um, <clears throat> I'm a trauma recovery person that can become an identity and then it can displace mm-hmm. genuine living. So this, yep. To, so, so that conversation between the two of you, I'd say there's two, two sides. On the one hand, it, it does need to go on to forever. On the other hand, it mustn't consume you. Um, yes. Uh, yes. It mustn't take up your life, you know? So that's the first point. Um, the second point, um, what can people do? Um, well, look, uh, these days it, 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 it's really helpful if you have, a, if you can afford the therapist, if you have insurance and, and, and not only that, if the therapist is any good, because the vast majority of what's offered as therapy is garbage. 
you know, because yes. it's got nothing to do with trauma. They just try and fix your behaviors. So yeah. if you have the good fortune to be able, be able to afford good therapy uh, and you find a good therapist, that's great. But what if you can't, uh, which is what your question is? Well, look, there's a good reason why the, why the best-selling um, paperback in this country week after week after week is a book on trauma by my friend and teacher and colleague, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. It's called uh, The Body Keeps the Score. The Body Keeps the it's Score. Not an, yeah, yeah it's, not, it's not an easy read. I mean, in the sense that it's a lot of uh, scientific information in it. It's very eloquent. It's a bestseller. Why? Because so many people are finding it helpful to find out about trauma. My book, The Myth of Normal, was published two months ago now. Next week, it'll be for its eighth week on the New York Times bestsellers list. Now, why is that? Because mm. people yes. actually want, because people are, and, it, and it's been a number one bestseller in my own country, Canada. Why? Because people are wanting to get this information. You don't have to have an expensive therapist. You can check out books. There's my books, all five of them. Uh, I'm not going to mention all the names. There's uh, Bessel van der book. There's Bruce Perry, who's worked with Oprah, and they've written a book called... Uh, Two books. They've written a book, bestseller recently. It's called What Happened to You. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Bruce has another book called The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. You can get these books out of the library. You can read them. It'll promote your healing tremendously. You can talk. You can call friends and say, and own your vulnerability and say, you know what? I need help. Yes. I need help. I need to. I need somebody just to listen to me. I don't need you to counsel me. I don't need you to tell me what to do. I just want you to hear me. You know, mm. then, <clears throat> then there's, uh, physical practices such as yoga, such as walking, moving, getting into nature. Then there are spiritual practices such as, um, meditation or certain kinds of prayer. You're praying for God to open your heart. You know, if you have a concept of God, that is, maybe you don't. So there's all kinds of spiritual practices. There's communal work and community uh, groups. You know, there's peer counseling. You can look that up online, peer counseling. So there's lots of modalities. But there's lots of modalities out there. The person who asks themselves, how can I heal, is already halfway there. Because they've acknowledged that they have an issue. They've overcome, whether they're, whatever the gender they are, they gave up their misbelief that they're not vulnerable and that they don't need help mm-hmm. and they become open to receiving it that already is the first big step usually when people, that. Take that, when people take that first step the next step really come along the universe in most cases will provide them the issue I don't want to forget here the issue I don't want to forget here is that trauma and, and, and pain are not equally distributed in the society you know, so that um, mm. I don't have to go. Into, I don't have to go into the statistics, but there's a history here. Last night, I took part in a sweat lodge here in close to Vancouver, and by some indigenous friends of mine, more than friends actually, siblings. Now it was powerful, you know. And um, but those people have suffered so much, you know, mm, yeah. just as indigenous people in the states have suffered, just as black people in the states have suffered. I'm not saying that Caucasian people don't suffer. Of course they do. Some of the people at the very top 
have suffered a lot, although they don't realize it. But still, suffering is not equally distributed, and therefore the healing um, has to go beyond just the individual. It really has to have happened on a social level as well. Thank you. Mm. Thank you for that. We just want to wrap up with um, a last question, and Liz is going to ask you it. Um, What does it mean to you to be man enough? To be a human being in connection in myself, with myself in the present moment. To be in connection with my authentic self in the present moment. Wow. I love that. This has been so remarkable. Um, oh, wish yeah, we could go for two more hours. Exactly. <laughs> um, we, we are really speechless and, and so grateful that you took the time, especially coming out of such a crazy book tour. Um, to speak to us, all of your scholarship and all of your research and writing has been so meaningful to all of us. And I, I know it'll be really valuable to our audience. Everybody I've told that you're coming on the podcast freaks out. And I know you have a big thing against idol worship and hero worship and what's happening in some yeah. of these communities. But I just want to acknowledge you for staying so true to the message, so true to um to your own healing and using vulnerability and showing what it looks like and how it can be a strength and, uh, and, and, and not, uh, creating this, uh, soapbox, if you will, where we should all worship you. You're just so human and normal. Um, which is now we know is a myth anyways. So, uh, I just thank you so much. Uh, it's been such an honor to have you on the show. Well, it's my pleasure. uh, And, uh, (laughs) I, I just want to say too that um, I really enjoy the format of talking to three distinct personalities or, or, or getting questions from these different directions. Um, and and uh, it's getting a lot. to know. <laughs> no, no, it's it, it's a wonderful format. I don't know how you came up with it, but it's unusual, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All Justin's oh, idea. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for being game. So much. God All bless right. you, my friend. Thank yes. you for everything. Have a great weekend. Uh, thank you, Dan. Take you. care. For uh, all of you who are listening, please uh, run, don't walk, and pick up Gabor's beautiful book, The Myth of Normal, and In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, and all the other incredible work he's done. If you like what you heard, you can uh, like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or where do they go, Liz? I always forget. Manonup.com slash podcast. Jamie, uh, I appreciate you being so quiet and taking everything in today, and I'm excited to talk to you off camera as your brother to hold some space for whatever you're feeling. I love you both tremendously. And um, uh, we'll see you next time. This is Man Enough.